0: Now, again, for context, Paul wrote chapter 3 to defend the Philippian church from a group known as the Judaizers. This group was so called because they believed that in order for a Gentile to be numbered among God's people, they needed to become Judaized or become Jews. And so we see that this group was threatening the church with the false teaching that only those who kept the Mosaic law could be saved. So, Paul's argument against this false teaching was that the righteousness which comes from faith in Christ is superior to the righteousness which comes from the law. The works of the law could never produce the moral perfection necessary to attain eternal life. Only the perfect righteousness of Christ can do that. And the way in which we have access to Christ's perfect righteousness is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and it's not by any works of the law, so that no man may boast. And so this is the focus of verses 1 through to 11. Paul is proclaiming to his readers the superiority of that righteousness uh, which is produced for us by Christ, as opposed to that righteousness which we can produce on our own. So tonight, as we look at what immediately follows in verses 12 to 16, we'll be focusing more on the end goal of that righteousness which Paul implored us to cling to. You see, the very purpose of Paul in writing to convince the Philippians to reject their own righteousness in favor of that righteousness that Christ had provided was so that they, like he, would attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice that Paul uses the pronouns it and this. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. You see, the this and it that Paul is referring to is the resurrection from the dead that he talked about in verses 10 and 11. Paul says he presses on, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so once we read on, we see that the goal that lay ahead was the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul had not yet attained Uh, resurrection from the dead, but he pressed on because that was his goal. And so that is our central idea tonight. Striving for the goal that is the resurrection from the dead. Now before I go any further, I just want to try and clear up any potential uh, confusion before it occurs. There are three terms that you're going to hear me using tonight. And these terms are so closely related to each other that at times I'm going to be using them interchangeably. Those three terms are resurrection from the dead, eternal life, and the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So regarding resurrection from the dead, scripture tells us that everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected from the dead. Some will be resurrected to eternal life, which of course is desirable, and some will be resurrected to face the second death as punishment for their sins, and that of course is undesirable. However, Paul uses the term in its desirable context in verse 11, when he says that by any means possible, he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. So he is specifically talking about the resurrection from the dead that results in eternal life. Regarding eternal life, Scripture tells us that the fullness of eternal life is attained when a person reaches the state where they will never die. So, it's the glorified state which all believers anticipate when our perishable bodies are transformed into our imperishable bodies and we are finally totally free from sin and death. For believers, this final state will be realized immediately upon the resurrection from the dead. And finally, regarding the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, this refers to the destiny of all believers, which is to live with God forever. God resides in heaven. So to be called upward by God is to be called to be with Him. This is obviously related to the resurrection from the dead since those who are resurrected to eternal life will have their home with God for eternity. So because of how closely related these three terms are, you're going to hear me using them interchangeably as we go on. So now Paul in verses 9, 10, and 11 had just told us of his abandonment of his own righteousness in favor of Christ's righteousness. And this was for the purpose of attaining the resurrection from the dead. But from verse 12, he makes sure to let his readers know that he had not yet obtained it. He says, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. Now, in examining how we ought to strive for the goal of eternal life, we ought to recognize that The goal to which we are striving is no less than absolute perfection. I'll say that again. The goal to which we are striving is no less than absolute perfection. And we come to this conclusion when we notice that Paul conflates eternal life with perfection. That's what he says in verse 12. Now this is significant because of the context in which Paul was speaking. Remember this entire portion of text from the beginning of chapter 3 is all about warning the Philippians to look out for the Judaizers doctrine. A doctrine that taught that moral perfection could be obtained in this life by works of the law. Thus there were those in Paul's day who were walking around puffed up because they believed themselves to have attained this perfection. But Paul puts that idea to rest right here. Unless you have attained the resurrection from the dead, you are not perfect. And this is the great Apostle Paul here, asserting his own imperfection. So to press the point, unless you believe yourself to be greater than the Apostle Paul, then you are not perfect. There's a level of humility that all believers ought to possess. And Paul is a fine example of it here. Even after laying hold of Christ, And trusting in him alone for salvation, he was still not perfect. Now, this is not to say that Christ's righteousness is insufficient for making us perfect. On the contrary, it certainly is sufficient. But understand that our christ purchased perfection is, by God's design, in the future. It is not meant for this life, but for the life to come. And that's simply by God's design. Could he have made us perfect right away upon our conversion? Absolutely. But God's design for his glory and his wisdom is that it is a future reality which we are awaiting. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to us since, as said before, Paul links perfection with resurrection from the dead. So since our resurrection from the dead is a future hope, then our perfection is a future hope also. Now someone might object and say, but I was raised to newness of life. When I put my faith in Christ, I already possess eternal life through Christ my Savior. Because of these present realities, I can be perfect in this life. Don't tell me that I can't. Well, my response to this is that while it is certainly true that we are currently, right now, new creations in Christ, and it is true that we were once dead in our sins and have now been raised to newness of life, what we must acknowledge is that the fullness of our newness has not yet come. While there has been profound change to who we are, that change is not yet complete. We are still in our original perishable bodies with remaining sin that wages war against our spirit. You see, the fullness of our redemption has not yet taken place. And what about our possessions in Christ Jesus? Well, it's true that as sons of God, we possess the right uh, to all that Christ has won for us kingdom, sonship, these sorts of things. But we possess them like a man possesses the deed to a piece of land in a faraway country. Yes, the man owns the land, but he has never been there. Yet he knows that one day he will go there and possess it fully. Our possession of eternal life is like that. The Holy Spirit living within us is the guarantee of our salvation, like the deed that the landowner has. So we know that we possess it but we are waiting on the fullness of that possession to take place. I want us all to think about the fact that if the Lord does not return within the next hundred years, all of us in here will be dead. But if we had possessed the fullness of eternal life, if we had possessed perfection, that wouldn't be the case. We wouldn't all dead. So we possess it in this sense that we can look forward to it as a future certainty, but not in the sense that it is a present reality wherein our bodies and hearts have been perfected. So perfection is a future certainty for those who are in Christ, but it is not yet a present reality. So now, having understood Paul's view of his moral status, and thus how we ought to view our moral status, we can now see how Paul responds to this moral status that he has. He says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look at how Paul's recognition of his imperfection affects him. Rather than, on one hand, being discouraged and quitting the faith, Or, on the other hand, being so puffed up that he felt like he didn't have to do anything, he was inspired to press on towards the perfection that comes with eternal life. He was moved by the fact that Jesus Christ had made him his own. Now, the New American Standard Bible renders uh, this passage in this way. But I press on so that I may lay hold for that which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words... Paul presses on to attain eternal life because that was the reason that Christ saved him. The reason for Christ laying hold of Paul and making him his own was so that by his power, he could bring Paul to eternal life. So that Paul himself could lay hold of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is an incredibly, incredibly encouraging thing for us to read. The very reason why you were saved was so that Jesus Christ could give us eternal life. It was so that he could raise us up on the last day. Christ Jesus came to earth and he lived and died on the cross so that by his sacrifice we would live forever with him. That is the plan. So when your Christian walk gets tough and you feel as though there is no hope for you, let what Paul says here be an encouragement to you. Jesus did not lay hold of you only to let you go. He laid hold of you with a purpose and he is bringing that purpose to pass. His unchangeable plan for you is for you to attain the resurrection from the dead. Thus, your present imperfection and the struggles that come with it shouldn't so depress you that you stop running towards the goal of perfection. We can press on and hope because we know the outcome is secure. And remember, we don't press on so that we can earn this salvation. This is more encouragement for us. Christ has already done that for us. So Paul doesn't root the reason for his striving in something that he needs to achieve in and of himself. Rather, he roots his reason for striving in the fact that Christ has already made him his own and has already ordained his life to culminate in the resurrection from the dead an eternal life and glory with God. And the same is true for each of us if we are in Christ. Furthermore, Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's knowledge of his imperfection does not discourage him. Because his eyes are fixed neither on his past sins, or even his present shortcomings, but on future glory. The language Paul uses here is that of a runner in a race. Runners neither look back as they run, nor do they stop along the way, but they continue with as much determination as they can muster towards the finish line. That finish line is their goal, and so nothing else matters. And consider also, brothers and sisters, that we are not chasing the goal of resurrection from the dead. We are not chasing it. You see, when you chase something, that implies that it is moving away from you, that it is trying to get away from you, that it is actively eluding you. But that is not the case. Thanks be to God that rather we are running a race. The finish line is fixed. It is not moving. We will reach our goal eventually, as long as we press on in the faith. And as we have seen, The goal for us as believers is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul calls this the prize. To be called to live with God for eternity is the reward that is given to all those in possession of Christ's righteousness. Paul helps us here to orient our minds toward what is really important. When we get distracted by all the things going on around us, it's as if... God through the Holy Spirit is reaching down and taking our heads and saying, look, don't look here. Look straight ahead. Look straight ahead at the goal. The prize is nothing less than eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth. If that is the case, why do we so vigorously pursue the pleasures of this present earth? No, there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts that God has provided for us here and now. But, What is it that we treasure above all else? What do we value? What is most important to us? Is it the earthly things of this present life? Or is it the heavenly things of the age to come? The sad reality is that the people of this world who are blinded by Satan and blinded by their own sin treasure above all else only that which they can possess here and now. They're so invested In this earth and in what this earth can offer. And they do not think about heavenly things. So just as Jesus taught, their treasure is here and so their hearts are here. But the believer's treasure or prize is in heaven. Thus our hearts and affections should be set on heaven. We should not hold the things, rather we should hold the things of this world loosely and hold tightly to our heavenly prize. Now notice that Paul has been using the language of effort throughout the verses that we're looking at tonight. Terms such as press on or straining forward. But this may be confusing since reading the preceding verses teaches us that our efforts cannot earn us resurrection from the dead. They are inferior. Paul says in verses 9 and 10 that he doesn't want to have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. But he wants to have that which comes through faith in Christ. Because only Christ's righteousness has the power to raise someone from the dead. So, if only faith in Christ alone can accomplish this for us, and not our own works, why does Paul keep talking about pressing on and straining? Why does he keep using this language of of effort? Well, our works do have a purpose. Rather than earning us eternal life, they serve as proof that we have already been saved. And this is a concept that we should be well familiar with by now. Those who have been redeemed by Christ have been transformed from being haters of righteousness to being lovers of righteousness. And so it follows that genuine believers would produce good works in keeping with their salvation. This is something we learned from Paul in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what Paul is saying here in chapter 3 is really a reiteration of what he said back in chapter 2. He says to the Philippians back then, he said it to, uh, to command them. Right? To instruct them, this is what you should do. And here in chapter 3, he is talking about how he himself personally lives. So what we learn from that portion of chapter 2 is that working out one's own salvation with fear and trembling has to do with doing the things that are consistent with one's status as a Christian. Working out one's own salvation means showing forth that you are saved by the way that you live. Or to put that another way, doing as James says, and showing one's faith by one's works. Letting it be evident to all that you possess the life-changing faith in Christ that you say you possess. And the fear and trembling, that has to do with understanding what a fearful and terrifying thing it would be to be without the salvation of Christ. The wrath of God, which will be poured out on the unrighteous for eternity in hell, should be the horrifying fate from which any sane person should seek to escape. So if, upon examination of your life, you see no evidence of salvation, or no good fruit on your branches, as it were, you ought to be worried that you haven't really repented and placed your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so what this means is that those who diligently go about showing forth their salvation are the ones who can have assurance of salvation they can have confidence in the transforming work of Jesus in their life because they actually see the evidence of that transformation. And so this is the sentiment that Paul is expressing here in chapter 3, where Paul says he presses on to make eternal life his own. And he says that he strains forward to what lies ahead. He is using those terms to communicate to us that he is being diligent to show forth his salvation. He wants it to be evident to all that Christ really has laid hold of him for the purpose of raising him up on the last day. This is important because people can very easily deceive themselves into thinking that they are something that they are not. Maybe they think that they are a Christian because they grew up going to church. Maybe they think that they are a Christian simply because they are not as bad as other people when they compare themselves to others. But upon examination of the things that they do, the evidence begins to pile up that they aren't really saved as their lives do not uh, look how they should according to the commands of Christ. Our Lord said in Mark 7, verses 16 to 20, that you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So the evidence of salvation is in the fruit or the works that are done by a person. And so Paul sought to make sure that his faith was real. So he put effort into his Christian walk. Because by any means, he wanted to attain the resurrection from the dead. He loved his Savior and wanted to make sure. And wanted to be in no doubt that on the last day he would get to spend eternity with Christ. So he was diligent. He pressed on. He strained forward. Not to earn salvation for himself, but to ensure that he really was who he said he was. That he really had what he said that he had. That he really was a child of God clinging to Christ's free gift of righteousness by faith, that he really would attain the resurrection from the dead. Are we doing the same? Are we putting effort into our Christian walk? Do we care to cultivate holiness in our lives? Do we watch what we watch, what we listen to, the things we read? Are we putting effort into our Christian walk? Finally, brothers, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to that which we have attained. You see, mature believers understand all the things that we've talked about tonight. They understand that they will never be perfect in this life, and yet they press on in hope towards the goal, which is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They know that this is the reason why they were saved, and so they seek to make their calling and election sure. Their focus is on the prize of being resurrected to eternal life. So if this is how mature believers think, then the inverse is true. Immature believers have trouble grasping some or all of these truths. But Paul tells us that God is gracious, and he will reveal it to them. New converts may think that upon receiving Christ as Lord, that their problems with sin will instantly disappear and they'll only ever be happy now that they've given their lives to Christ. But of course, as time goes on, the newfound war going on inside of them between their flesh and their spirit, that war bubbles to the surface and they see just how imperfect they still are. Some get discouraged and think that something is wrong with them. After all, they say, aren't I supposed to be better than this? I thought I wouldn't have to struggle with this or that sin since I became a Christian. Well, for those believers, the Holy Spirit, by the word of God and the teaching of more mature brethren, is there to reveal to them that the Christian life is a struggle. That it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Make no mistake, trouble will come from outside of you because of the sins of others. And it will also come from within you because of your own sin. And when it does, you will see your imperfection. You'll see how impatient you can be. You'll see how ungrateful you can be. You'll see your lusts. You'll see your hatred. You'll see your selfishness and you'll see your pride. And you'll see that you are not good enough to battle your sin on your own. But remember what our Lord said to his servant Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore we should be encouraged in our weakness and imperfection. So that the power of Christ may rest upon us. For the sake of Christ then we should be content with weaknesses. Insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Listen, God means to display His keeping power in you. That's why, when you were saved, you were not instantly made perfect. God is in it for His glory. When you go through the hardships of life, when you stumble because of sin, Christ is there to pick you up. It stands as a testament to all those who see this person could, could sin and fall, and Christ will restore him because Christ is merciful. And Christ has the power to do that. Christ had the power to take a a murderous man like Paul and turn him into one of the greatest evangelists for the faith. Christ is in it for his glory. and He is being glorified through you. So do not be discouraged when your sin seems to be dragging you down. But fight on and press on because you know Jesus Christ means to bring you to eternal life. So we must continue pressing on. Perfection will come at the end of our lives. So we set our eyes on that goal and continue striving to reach it. Those less mature among us may be tempted to think otherwise and give up. But those of us who are mature must come alongside them and teach them to keep running. To keep bearing good fruit in keeping with the faith that they have. That by this the truth may be revealed to them and that they too might become mature. You see brothers and sisters there is hope for us in our frailty and in our imperfection. So Paul encourages us to hold true to that which we attain. If we have laid hold of Christ Jesus by faith, then we have also laid hold of eternal life. The two are inseparable. We know our resurrection and future glory is certain because we believe God's promises. And this has to affect the way that we live, the way that we think, Since Jesus has made you his own, then you have all the more reason to live for him. Since he has set you apart to attain the resurrection from the dead, then you have all the more reason to keep running toward that goal. Don't let anything you did in your past hold you back. It doesn't matter if it was 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago. Don't allow your current imperfection to be as shackles on your feet, keeping you from running. If Christ has forgiven your sins by His one sacrifice, then you have no excuse. He has lifted the heavy burden of your debt to the law off of your shoulders. Now you are free to run quickly and with all the more vigor toward Christ. This scripture is a call to action. God wants us to press on. He wants us to run. He wants us to be with Him and so He has laid hold of us for that purpose. And so he stands at the finish line as a father with outstretched arms, spurring us on toward him. So let us keep our eyes fixed on him, not wavering to the left or to the right, not distracted by our imperfections or our weaknesses, being careful and diligent to do all that our Lord has commanded as we run towards our eternal life. Amen.